Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for dialing into today's call. On the call, you have myself, Lead Portfolio Manager, Oscar Oberg. Uh, to my right, uh, you have Tobias Yao, Portfolio Manager, and you have Senior Equity Analyst, Sam Kosh and Sean White, and Equity Analyst and Dealer, uh, Cooper Rogers and, and Will Thompson. So given Tobias and I uh, spoke at length just over a month ago, we thought we'd change it up a little bit today. Uh, Sam and Sean will, will give an overview of reporting season and then how we're positioned into 2023 uh, before the team will then uh, talk about our four highest conviction buy ideas uh, into 2023. Then following that, we'll have a, uh, an extended uh, question and answer se session. We're happy to go as, lo as long as um, you on the call uh, need it to go for. And that will be run by our senior corporate affairs advisor, Camilla Cox. Now, before I hand it over to Sam, um, I'd like to, to turn to slide three, which is probably one of the most important, well, is the, is the most important slide in the pack. Um, and essentially, this is a summary of, of the dividends across the, the four funds that we keep paying on an interim basis compared to the profit reserve, which in other words, is the profit that we've built up to continue paying these dividends. Now, if, you, if we look at WAM Capital, you'll see that our interim dividend is a 7.75 cents a share. And this compares to the profit that's built up, which is 14.7 cents per share. Now, what this means is, is that from that 14.7, we can fund the next dividend, which will be in April of 7.75, and approximately 90% of the October 2023 dividend. Now, as a reminder, we can only um, add to that 14.7 cents a share or the profit if the, the, the market is up and our portfolio is generating profit, uh, positive, profit, uh, positive performance. Now, in the case of February, the market was down and our, our, our uh, performance was there or thereabouts in line with the market. So we haven't been able to add to our profit reserve in the month of February. So it's very important as investors that you're continuing to monitor the market and monitoring our net tangible asset updates that are released uh, at the middle of every month uh, over the next few months to make sure that we continue, that the market, at first the market goes up and that our performance is in line with the market so we can keep generating profit that adds to that profit reserve and then can give you more confidence around our dividends uh, from October 2023 onwards. So with that in mind, and there's, I'm sure there'll be a number of questions asked uh, about that like there was uh, back at the end of January when Tobias and I did that call, uh, but we'll talk. I will pass it over to Sam, who who will talk about uh, reporting season. Thanks, Oscar. Um, reporting season was actually one of the weakest on record, with more companies missing expectations than actually beating them. We had our fair share, as usual, of winners and losers for the period, and performance, as Oscar alluded to, was sort of there or thereabouts. We'll provide a greater detail um, with our monthly NTA update later in February. From a sector perspective, the key trends that we identified were a deteriorating um, housing environment. You saw that in Domain and REA's results recently. And that obviously flowed through into sort of consumer weakness in the household goods retailing sector with companies like Adairs, JB Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman, Temple Webster posting weak results or seeing evidence of weak results in the consumer. On the flip side, you've seen auto companies actually post pretty resilient results and resilient outlook statements. Companies like Adegas, McMillan Shakespeare, GED Group and Smart Group actually outperformed. And then obviously in a very uncertain environment, the market's looking for confidence in the short term. So as companies like Steadfast and AUB, Adegas and 
and corporate travel that could provide confidence in the short to medium term outlook that actually outperformed. As results rolled through, there was a really interesting consistent theme irrespective of the sector. We saw revenue upgrades and earnings margin downgrades as inflation continues to wreak havoc on the corporate cost bases of Australia. With input cost inflation moderating to a degree, we actually saw um, that play out. However, wage inflation continues to run hot. When revenue is actually less certain in the current environment and input cost inflation and cost inflation as a whole is actually a given, the market was laser focused on how healthy corporate Australian balance sheets were. And so you saw people focus in on cash flow conversion and increases in net debt were punished. We're keeping a really close eye out for any signs that inflationary pressures are easing, which will reduce the upward pressure on interest rates and reduce the downward pressure on the economy. So in light of that, I'll pass to Sean just to give us an overview of how we're positioned going forward. Thanks, Sammy. Yeah, so I guess in terms of our overarching uh, portfolio position looking forward, I mean, we believe that a peak in inflation and therefore interest rates is now within line of sight which should provide a more positive backdrop for companies within the small cap industrial sector to outperform, albeit we don't expect that path to be linear, which is, has been the case throughout January and, and February today. A key thing we did see throughout reporting season was those companies that had seen their share prices perform well leading in and were well-owned by investors required very strong earnings results in order for the share prices to continue to rally. We've been selectively reducing our exposure to those companies in the months leading into reporting season, whilst adding to positions that we believe should outperform the market when investors look to add more exposure to small caps, which is consistent with what we've seen in previous market cycles. The small industrials underperformed the All Orders Index by 22% in calendar year 22, as investors focus on maintaining high liquidity and lower risk within their portfolios. Hence, we believe there is quite a lot priced in with valuations in small cap industrials near 10-year lows and looking very compelling to us. We remain confident in our process and optimistic on the outlook for our portfolio companies. Balance sheets are healthy with the majority of our portfolio in a net cash position, meaning they hold more cash and or property on their balance sheets than debt. In terms of some key themes within the portfolio, we remain positive on the outlook for companies exposed to the tourism and leisure sector, such as Webjet, Flight Centre, Event Hospitality and Tourism Holdings. The reopening of the Chinese economy should also benefit these companies, along with others such as IDP Education and A2 Milk. We can also leverage this theme through mining services uh, with, con with contractors such as NRW Holdings, Parenti, and oil and gas services provider Mermaid Marine, which we expect to benefit from strengthened resources. We've also been selectively building positions in companies exposed to the domestic economy, which appear oversold and outlooks could ultimately prove, you know, what we think will be less bad. This includes companies exposed to the housing sector, such as lifestyle communities, Boral, Johnson Group and Qualitas, to name a few. I guess as a broad overarching statement, there is a good balance of value and growth, um, you know, exposed stocks within the portfolio. And there's also, you know, an underlying focus on earnings resilience. The retracement in valuations is also enabling us to build positions in companies that we'd previously screened out 
as too expensive with, with high quality names such as ProMedicus, REA Group and Fisher and Pipel Healthcare, which respect the benefit as the peak in rates is reached. So I guess in terms of some um, high conviction ideas within the portfolio at the, at the moment, we thought we'd all you know, put one put one forward. So I'll kick things off. So the stock that I'm, I'm pitching is Qualitas. The stock code is QAL. So it's one of Australia's leading alternative real estate investment managers. The company's got 5.8 billion in funds under management, has been generating very strong inflows to date from global institutional investors which we believe will continue given the rising appetite for exposure to private credit and the commercial real estate sector. Qualitas is a beneficiary of higher interest rates, along with the ongoing retreat of the major banks from this underserved market, which is seeing the opportunity set continue to broaden and is more than outpacing committed fund within the business, which underpins a strong backdrop for deployment going forward. As such, we think the business is well positioned to upgrade earnings expectations in the future. When strategic value actually also owns shares in Qualitas as a listed investment trust, which the stock code is QRI, which currently trades at a 5% discount to NTA and has been closing more recently um, and offers investors a very attractive 10% yield. <clears throat> I'll now hand it over to Sam, who will put forward his idea. Thanks, Sean. Um, my next high conviction pick is IPD Group, the ticker is IPG. It's an Australian electrical wholesaling business where the founders still own over 25%. We think IPD can actually outperform industry growth rates of 5 to 10% per annum through their exclusive partnerships with, with suppliers, through their greater exposure to high growth areas like data centres, and obviously the very customer-centric business model. The cherry on top is that they've got a small but growing presence in the electric vehicle thematic, which we expect inquiry-wise to actually double and triple over the next two to three years. It's trading on just sort of 14 times price to earnings multiple with 15% earnings growth outlook uh, forecast, $21 million of net cash on the balance sheet. We think the catalyst to see the stock re-rate from here is earnings upgrades and further industry consolidation. I'll hand over to Will to provide his Mine's uh, IGL, which is a carbon abatement company. IG a carbon abatement is essentially you've got a landfill, get a landfill from a, from your local council, and they remove the gas, which can be uh, it's actually methane gas, which is thirty times worse for the environment. Where they actually make money is they make that gas into energy and supply that into the, the um, local energy market. But they also earn ACUs, which are Australian carbon credit units. We've seen those carbon credit units go from thirty dollars to 100 euros in Europe. We've seen them go from 30 to $70 in the US, and we've seen some strong price movement this year after the um, Chubb review, which gave the Australian market a bit of guidance and a um, confidence going forward. Um, great management, great board, and it's one we really like in the micro fund. I now pass to Cooper. I'll do what Sean mentioned earlier, the recovery tourism industry is a, is a theme that we like to play. Experience Go, the ticker is EXP. Um, it's a tourism operator that runs a number of tours and activities across the east coast of Australia and in New Zealand. For example, it runs boats out of Cairns for experiences on the Great Barrier Reef, luxury wilderness, glamping-style activities. It's got a treetop adventure parks business. But the business that we focus on is the skydive business, and it's returning to strength after COVID had decimated its earnings. So through FY22, it was really only the weekend warrior that kept this business afloat. 
Um, it really missed out on the midweek uh, skydiving jumps. When we, we're seeing international arrivals in Australia come back, and, it's, and, and that'll in turn fill up those midweek spots. The fixed cost nature of that skydiving business means that it's currently just break even. It's sitting at about 50% of pre-COVID demand. When that increases, because of the fixed cost nature, you'll see a lot of that incremental revenue drop straight through to the bottom line. We'll be looking for upgrades in that area for EXP, so it's one we'll keep a close eye on. We can pass back to Camilla for questions. Thanks, guys. Uh, Oscar, we're going to start questions off with you. There's a lot coming through. So this one, first one's from Stuart and actually a few others uh, who have asked, can you please explain why the YM Capital share price has dropped recently? Yes, sure. Uh, thanks uh, Thanks for the questions. Um, yeah, Tobias and I, we sort of, and Jeff talked about this in the call sort of in January, but just, just as a recap, um, Basically what happened when the war occurred sort of around January and February last year, that, that, that was a, a, a large event really for the whole market. But what we saw was a, quite a, a, was a strong dislocation between those companies that benefited from the war and those companies that didn't benefit from the war. Now, unfortunately, the process of Wilson Asset Management over the last 20 years has been that we focus on industrial companies um, rather than resources companies, which is, you know, we've seen coal, oil, iron ore, really do very well over this period. You know, shareholders might have holdings of BHP, Woodside, Commonwealth Bank in their, in their portfolio have done very, very well. So in that period, we underperformed quite extensively in March. And effectively, that's the main reason why we have underperformed uh, over the last, call it 12 months. And so, and the reason why I'm giving you that context is because if you have a look at the WAM Capital share price in that March quarter, our, our cohort of stocks, the small cap stocks, went down and our portfolio went down, yet the share price didn't move. And at one point in April, it was trading at a 30% premium to its net tangible assets. Now, when um, the sell-off really hit, hit hard in the June quarter, we were actually in line with the market. That was okay because everything got sold off. And then the WAM Capital share price caught up. And I think when, when we got to sort of around June... Uh, that that premium had shrunk to around a fifteen percent, fifteen to twenty percent premium. Now, over that over that six month period, because our portfolio, our portfolio performance was negative, was down with the market, it meant that there was a six month period where we weren't generating profit to add to our profit reserve, and we kept paying dividends. So that profit reserve that we showed you in, in slide three. That differential between the the dividend, the interim dividend of seven point seven five, and the profit began to close. Now, thankfully, over this last financial year, um, you know, we've been able to generate around 13 to 14% of positive performance. So we've been able to add to that profit reserve. But as I talked about previously, um, we really only have around 11 months of visibility. Um, and I think, so to put that all together, why is the share price fallen? Well, the main reason largely is because of that 11 months visibility. I'm talking to you about the dividend. We have a period where the market falls extensively for the next six months. It'll put that that oct the October and the April 2023 dividend at risk. And then, secondly, small cap companies have underperformed large cap companies. And I think Sean mentioned that just before that the underperformance is is over 20% over the last 12 months. Um, and that's why we're at one of the reasons why we've underperformed the broader market. So they're the real factors at play there, and that's that's probably the reasons why we sit today. 
where the share price is. And I still think it's worth worth noting the share price is still at a premium. It's still at a 10 to 15% premium to its net tangible assets. Um, as Jeff has always said, he likes buying things at a discount. The share price is still at a premium. So I think it's like to finish off, it's very, very important uh, for the listeners to be watching our net tangible asset announcements every every month. Watch what the market's doing, um, and then you can make your own decision uh, from there as to whether you know the, the stability of those dividends can be made, can be maintained. Thanks, Oscar. You covered off a few of our questions there. If we can focus on WAM Research for a minute, this one's from Mark. He said, "Is WAM Research's current uh, share price premium to NTA, which was twenty seven point four eight percent for January close, a cause for concern?" As you mentioned, WAM Capital's share price decline was due to its large premium to NTA. So, well, look, it's it's a, it's a it's not cause for concern. I mean, it's it's a good problem to have, and I think WAM Research has had a has a very strong profit reserve and ability to pay dividends, so um, relative to WAM Capital. Um, the issue we, we do have in WAM Research is we are short a little bit of, of franking. Now, that can change quite quickly if we have a positive market and we gem- generate unrealised gains in the portfolio. Um, but generally, as I'll come back to my last statement, a 27% premium to its net tangible assets is extremely high, extremely, extremely high. So... Um, you know, at, at some point we could see WAM research, you know, at, at NTA or even a discount. So I think it's just worthwhile just r- reminding investors of that um, because, yeah, high premiums can easily become discounts at some point. Thanks, Oscar. You just mentioned the franking balance there for WAM research. Uh, we've got a question. Is this going to impact the next dividend? Um, look, potentially, um, Look, it depends really. So our ability to pay franking is the unrealised gains that we make in the portfolio and the tax that we pay on those unrealised gains and also the franking we receive from dividends from the companies that we own. So, again, it just depends on the market. Um, if the market's positive into the into the end of the financial year and the start of the, the next financial year, then we should be okay. Uh, but as it stands today, we've got enough franking for the next dividend, but for the dividend after that, yeah, we, we are a little low, uh, but that can change very quickly. And I think broadly, Camilla, it's worthwhile noting, look, we were saying the same things right now that we were saying in the middle of 2020 uh, with a number of the funds, and we saw a you know, huge uplift in, in the market from that point in time. So I think it's, look, there, it is a tough market. It's a very tough market right now for small cap companies, um, but it can change very quickly. Um, so... Look, and certainly we're feeling very bullish around our portfolio. So, yeah, look, I mean, it's worth worthwhile putting that into context, I think. Great. Thanks, Oscar. Um, Tobias, we've actually got a question for you now from Sue. She's asked, when do you think a rotation towards small to mid-cap sector will come into full swing? Th- thanks, Sue. Um, to put it into context, um, Oscar mentioned this earlier. So last year in 2022, uh, small-cap companies underperformed large-cap companies by um, over 20%. Now, that's not new. We've seen this before, and that was around the global financial crisis. That was the perfect setup for a few years of outperformance by small cap companies versus their larger peers. You know, we believe that we're getting closer to that point. Um, a lot of the data, if you look at a lot of the macro data last year, it's been one direction. Now we're seeing a sort of mixed signal. So once the market gets comfort around what peak interest rate looks like, um, then there will be more risk appetite to, to come down 
the spectrum to invest in small cap companies. And so we do believe we're getting closer to that point um, versus when we when we did the call last time around. Yeah, I think as well, just to maybe put some context around it. Um, yesterday, um, all of the, there's positive data out on China. So, of course, the iron ore companies had a very strong day. So that's BHP, Rio Tinto, Fortescue. And that's pro- broadly around 20% of the Australian market. And we don't own a share in any of those companies. And so that, that basically we underperformed the market yesterday by around 0.8, 0.9%. So that sort of shows you the sort of headwind that we, we've had. Now, at some point that will reverse um, and be very, very beneficial for us. And I think, yeah, we said this in the last call, in 20, from 2010 to 2016, which is a great period for WAM Capital that you can all remember, small cap companies outperformed large cap companies by around 5% a year. Um, the actual reverse of that has happened. It's actually been around negative 3 to 4% since 2016 to today. So we do think we're, we're actually very close to the bottom and we do think this will rotate in small cap's favour very soon. Great. Thanks both. Um, Sean, we'll go over to you. This one's from Nat, who noticed on a previous call that you were positive on the tourism sector. Is that still the case? Yeah, thanks, Milan. Thanks, uh, Nat, for the question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our overarching view on, on the tourism and leisure sector is it will continue to benefit from the shift in spend from goods to services as people get out and about. I mean, I think at the moment, China's a great example of that. They've effectively been locked up for three years, and you can see you know, the massive reacceleration that's occurring there in terms of both inbound and, and outbound travels. So, yeah, as I, as I mentioned before, I mean, companies such as Webjet, um, Flight Center, um, Event Hospitality, Tourism Holdings, you know, Coopers, um, Stockbit, Experience Co. Um, yeah, these are all names that, that we really like. So, yeah, we, we still remain very positive on the, on the tourism travel sector. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Oscar, this one's from Sally, who's wondering if the recent acquisition of West Oz and Ozgrowth contributed to the share price drop at all. Yeah, thanks, Sally. Look, I... I... I would say it probably did. Um, and However, I will say that the shares were too high at that point relative to what was happening in the market. So for those on the call that can remember, we did the, the takeover of Euros and West Oz and was announced to the market, I think, around December 2021. Uh, it took about three or four months to close. And I think we, we got the, um, the, fu- the fund, I think, in sort of mid-April. Now, we've had a previous takeover of Mason where basically um, – those that weren't long-term holders of Wilson Asset Management, when we took over Mason, we saw some selling and then the share price quickly rebounded to back uh, to where it was. Now, what happened with Euros and West Oz, we had that same um, dynamic. Um, there was some selling, but then the market came off and that just exacerbated the selling more. Um, so it definitely would have contributed uh to that, but I, I still think we'd be in the same spot with the share price anyway. I mean, we're, we're still at a 10 to 15% premium to its net tangible assets. Um, the premium was 30%. It shouldn't have been there. Small cap companies have underperformed large cap companies. So, you know, it, 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 the share price today is probably a fair reflection of what we've seen over the last, over the last year. Um, but just as well, just a reminder, on that transaction, that was very beneficial to our uh, net tangible assets and, and was accretive. I think it was around um, 3.3% um, and actually added $52 million to our net tangible assets. So it was a good deal. 
Um, it was just, yeah, in terms of the timing of the, those that were long-term shareholders of WAM, probably wasn't the best. Thanks, Oscar. Tobias, next one's for you. Um, are you positioning for any takeover opportunities at the moment? Yes, yeah, sure. So um, we typically don't invest in companies um, where, you know, takeover is a catalyst. You know, we obviously our investment process is to buy undervalued growth companies, you know, with, I guess, more organic um, catalysts that could re-rate the share price. However, if we look at our portfolio, you know, we think healthcare is still an interesting space. Um, there's a lot of interest from private equity funds or strategic investors to, to invest in that space. So um, a couple of companies, you know, I've noted down SDA Health and Capital Health. So one's an aged care and one's a radiology uh, network. You know, these companies are trading at very uh, cheap valuation or very attractive valuation. You know, there is scale advantage um, for, for someone to come and acquire these businesses and benefit from the economies of scale. Um, and so these companies, we believe, um, are likely takeover targets um, in the future. Thanks, Tobias. Cooper, we've got a question for you from Elizabeth. Um, she's asked, what are some of the mining services companies that you think are of fair value? Yeah, uh, thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. We've, yeah, we have a significant holding in a few uh, mining services stocks, to name a few, Austin Engineering, Monodelphus, Parenti, um, NWH. Um, I suppose that's what I can think of off the top of my head. With, with all of these companies, we think they're either undervalued or fair valued, as you mentioned, Elizabeth. Um, and with all of them, the key thing to look for is margins and those improving margins and earnings over the next half. Um, so, yeah, yeah, they're just something under few. I think to add to Cooper's point, I mean, the valuation on these stocks relative to pre-COVID, uh, you know, at the moment on average around 20 to 30% lower. Um, and, you know, we'd argue almost across the board, you know, stocks like Parenti and, and NLW, the actual underlying quality of the business has, you know, improved significantly. So, yeah, I mean, with the reopening of China and the positive leverage to resources and commodities prices that provides, I mean, and also, you know, what we think is a very tight labour market here domestically. We think that the balance of power is actually increasingly moving back towards the contractors versus, yeah, the miners themselves. So just, just add that as well. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Cooper. Sam, we'll go back to you to chat about earnings season again. Uh, this one's from Peter, and he saw that Maya posted positive results during the season. What are your thoughts on the retail sector moving forward? Thanks, Camilla. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, Maya posted some really strong results. We're incredibly pleased with how that's going. And obviously, John King's doing a cracking job there running the business. I mean, from our perspective, I think performance from here in the retail sector will be really interesting. I think it diverges depending on how, what sort of the, the exposure of that retailer is and also the people that are actually running the business. And you're starting to see that now. As I mentioned, household goods retailers are doing a little bit tough at the moment. But you're seeing companies exposed to the apparel um, area like <clears throat> Premier and, and Universal Retail, two companies that we own within different strategies of the portfolio, so really outperforming. And, and, and obviously, Lavisa, as, as Sean has reminded me too. So, um, you know, it, it really comes down to, I guess, operators that are driving these businesses to their full potential. It also comes down to exposure. In, in Universal's example, for instance, their core demographic doesn't have a mortgage. And so when you think about interest rate rises that are coming through the economy, they aren't as exposed there. So they continue to spend, they continue to want to go out for live events and the, and the company's seeing that benefit, which again, <laughs> benefits the visa as well. So I guess in, as far as the retail sector is concerned, 
we're taking a really sort of stock pickers approach. Thank you, Sam. Um, Sean, this one's from Dan. Uh, China opening up is beneficial for iron ore and coal, but what about other sectors of the market? Yeah, thanks, Dan. I mean, the key ones that we sort of see is providing leverage to, to that China reopening theme. There's obviously the, the tourism and, and travel space, which mentioned a few names there before, the likes of Webjet, Flight Centre, you know, event hospitality and, and tourism holdings. Um, you know, we like companies like IDP Education, which will benefit from the return of, you know, Chinese students to Australian shores. I mean, historically, over 25% of their volumes here in Australia have been Chinese students. That's currently tracking at less than 10 um, so, yeah, we think there's really good upside through that theme. Um, and then I guess the final sort of leverage point there would really be around commodity prices, which we mentioned before. And, yeah, we like the mining services space for that reason. So, yeah, we, we, are, we are playing that theme and, and we do like it. Thanks, Sean. Tobias, this one's from Rick. Um, he asked, do you see any opportunities within the technology sector? Yes, thank, thanks, Rick. Yeah, um, 100%. You know, we've um, invested in a few tech names recently, um, one that is of pretty high conviction is a company called Prometicus. Um, you know, I, I think it's one of the highest quality tech businesses on the ASX, um, has over 50% um, profit margins and it's growing at 30%, um, ha has a very strong moat. They've never lost a customer in the um, in the 20 years. You know, they've run the business, it's founder-led, the, the two founders own over 50% of the business. Um, so that that's one that we quite like. But yeah, um, overall, we're definitely finding more and more opportunities in the tech space. Thanks, Tobias. This one's from Peter. Um, I think a few of the analysts can answer this one. Were there any surprises in the earnings season? Uh, maybe, Sam, we'll start with you. Definitely. Thanks, Camille. Thanks, Peter. Um, I think the biggest surprise, like earnings season always has surprises, but the biggest surprise for me was a couple of companies that posted you know, some tough first half 23 results for the last six months that provided some confidence in their outlook statements that really got the market excited. The two companies in particular that I can think about there is just corporate travel and credit corp. Again, they have conviction in the next six to 12 months within their respective businesses and they talk to the market about that conviction and irrespective of their weak result, the stock actually outperformed. So that was, the, that was one surprising thing from my perspective. Yeah, and just expanding on Sam's point, I mean, overall, it was a tough reporting season. I mean, we saw the most, the, the ratio of downgrades to upgrades was the for earnings was the highest in 25 years. So, yeah, clearly, um, clearly not an easy environment. But, yeah, I mean, we, we found, you know, I guess on average, the upside surprises were really those stocks that were what we perceived as under-owned or not well-owned by investors. So a good example of that would be GD Holdings, um, you know, businesses trading on a single-digit PE, made a large acquisition out of private equity. You know, it's underperformed, um, I guess, expectations. All the hallmarks of stock you wouldn't want to own, I guess, initially. But, yeah, we think that business has turned the corner. It's cheap. The, the end markets are defensive. And, you know, we think the earnings outlook strong and, and the balance sheet should progressively de-gear as that comes through. Now, I'm assuming the question on surprises is negative surprises. Um, so in terms of negative surprise, we did have our fair share. There's no doubt about it. But I think, you know, going into it, we knew it was going to be a very tough reporting season, definitely. Um, there was going to be a lot of companies that guided to a second-half weight. Um, so there's only really one company where we really reduced our holdings significantly, which was a Nero, EGG. 
the remainder of the companies that we own, we actually bought, um, you know, quite substantially um, when the share prices fell. So, you know, as Sean and Sam said, it was a very weak reporting season, but that's normal. We were expecting that. And, and, and the pleasing thing there was the small cap industrials index actually outperformed the broader market in the month. So that's actually a very good sign that perhaps we are getting closer to the bottom. Thanks, guys. Uh, Tobias, we'll go to you now. This one's from Graham. Have you seen a slowdown in IPOs and capital raisings? And how do you see IPOs trending in 2023? Yeah, so excluding, um, you know, companies in the mining space, it has been pretty slow. Um, but more recently, we've have pa- uh, participated in a couple of capital raisings. You know, Flight Center is probably the most notable one recently. You know, it's done really well for us. We're actually, you know, doing the work um, on the business prior to the prior to the raise. Um, and, and even more recently, to, you know, we've seen... Um, a couple of ones in the small cap space, retail food group and matrix composites. So we've started to participate in these names. Um, from an IPO perspective, you know, we believe it will continue to be relatively slow. Um, but from a capital raising perspective, you know, we think there are more and more opportunities that will come to the market. Thanks, Tobias. Oscar, James has asked for your views on AMP. Yeah, we, we still like the company. We were a little bit disappointed for the result. We sold a lot into it. Um, so did Wham Strategic, which was, you know, a good move when we started selling about $1.30, $1.35. Um, don't get me wrong, it still hurt us um, over that period. Um, it was a very messy result. Um, there's still a lot of um, one-off items and impairments going through the numbers and it's difficult to note where certain divisions are. So, it, 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 yeah, so it was... So I'm not, we're not surprised that it fell, and it had an. I think it was one of the best performing stocks in the ASX last year. So, but where it is now, we're we're now back at a 20% or over 20% discount to net tangible assets. The business is buying back around 25 to 30% of its uh, shares on issue over the next uh, two or three years. A very strong balance sheet. We think the CEO Alexis George is doing a very good job. Um, and we and we do think there's more asset sales to come. So we we still like the the company. Um, but our holding has been reduced. It's about um, it's about a third to a half of what it what it, what it was um, a few months ago. Okay, thanks, Oscar. Uh, Sean, you might be able to answer this one. It's also from James, who asks, "What part of General Development Group ticker GDG are you most attracted to?" Yeah, thanks, James. Management, management, management would be the answer to that one. Uh, businesses ran, uh, run by Grant Hackett, obviously the um, former Australian Olympian. Yeah, we think he's extremely high quality, very motivated and driven to um, you know, deliver strong outcomes to shareholders. Um, I'd say from an operational level, I mean, the Lonsec business has been absolutely flying. It's proved to be you know, a very good acquisition, you know, which was obviously led by management and by Grant. Um, and then I guess from here, so, so I mean, we continue to see a really strong outlook for Lonsec. And we think as markets sort of stabilise and some of the retirement, recent retirement, policy changes, you know, that's actually very positive for the investment bonds business too. So, yeah, we think the outlook for, for GDG looks um, looks really good. Thanks, Sean. Um, Oscar, this one's from Karen, who's asked, why isn't the WAM microcap dividend higher considering the profits reserve is so high? Yeah, thank, thanks, Karen. Um, yeah, great question, really. Um, look, obviously, it's a board decision. Um, and we've increased our dividend from $0.05 cents to $0.5.25. Cents. And, yes, you're right, the, the profit reserve is really high. It's one of the highest out of in the four funds that we certainly manage. I think it's worth pointing out that in the last, I think, of the 
Five years we've run WAM microcap. Four of those five years we've given special dividends when our performance has been very strong. Um, clearly in the last financial year, while we outperformed, we were down quite significantly. Um, so the board took a, a prudent approach and not to give a special dividend. And, um, yeah, the same goes with increasing the dividend. Um, you know, the, it is a very uncertain market right now. And I guess the last thing we want to do as a house is have a situation that we sort of do with WAM Capital where if we pay more, we, we, we want to gradually increase your dividends over a longer term. The last thing we want to do is increase your dividend and then mm-hmm. the market falls for an extended period of time. Microcap companies will be worse than the broader market because they're highly risky. And we at some point in the future, we might have to pull or reduce your dividends. So um, I can see the, the reason for your question, definitely. Um, but I think it's our view is we want to be in this for the long term and we want to keep increasing those dividends every year. Great. Thanks, Oscar. Um, Tobias, another one from James. What are some characteristics of Wilson Asset Management that differentiates us from our competitors? It's a, it's a great, great question. Thanks, James. Um, I think, firstly, it's our investment process. So, you know, when Jeff founded a business over 25 years ago, you know, that investment process had been tested over various cycles. So this is uh, investing in undervalued growth companies with catalysts that could re-rate the share price. Um, you know, one thing that's pretty unique to us is also our active and research strategies, where it's how it comes together. Um, we, we, we do a lot of meetings, I think like probably a thousand meetings um, as a team over the, over the year. Um, and so that sort of forms part of the ability for us to identify opportunities relatively early uh, in the, on the active side and also on, on the research side. Now, with WAM Microcap, um, these are companies that in the future could be larger companies uh, in, in the ASX 200 index. Sometimes the Microcap ideas also flow into WAM Capital, which gives us, um, I guess, um, uh, helps us with the idea generation. Um, and, and finally, the lick structure, you know, having this permanent pool of capital is a, is a huge competitive advantage, you know, during periods of uncertainty. You know, we don't have the pressures of, you know, money flowing out from, you know, um, capital outflows. And so we can make longer term decisions and, and um, ensure that we stick to our investment process. I think a good example of probably our process and um, working at its best, let's call it, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of times when it doesn't. Um, but just to give you a flavour of why we think this is a competitive advantage. So Mermaid Marine sits in um, WAM Capital, WAM Microcap. It's been our best stock over the last 12 months by probably a long way. Um, Mermaid Marine was a, a small cap company. I think its market capitalization might have been five or $600 million at the peak of the oil boom back in 2012. They did a very bad acquisition. The business, then oil prices fell, capital expenditure fell in oil and gas, um, demand for their services fell, and the business was essentially broke um, and was hardly alive, let's call it, uh, for about five or six years. It raised money twice. Now, we kept seeing Mermaid Marine over that de- over the last decade, um, probably once or twice a year. Uh, we knew the management team that had come in to try and fix it. Um, and basically, so around it was probably around this time last year, you know, having seen them very regularly, um, you could sense a change in the management. They, you could sense that things were getting better. And clearly, oil prices have gone up a lot. Yeah, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and there just simply hasn't been any investment in that sector for a long, long time. So we bought the stock, um, and we bought it at around 40 cents. Um, 
So I think the shares today are about dollar fifteen, dollar twenty, um, and we aggressively bought the stock. We went to you know over ten percent of the company. Uh, I think it was around May or June of last year um, across WAM Capital, WAM Microcap. So that's a big bet in, the, in both portfolios, and it's paid off. Um, but we wouldn't have gotten that bet. We wouldn't have been able to buy shares in Mermaid if we hadn't done all those meetings in all those years where no one was interested in the stock. So for for art for me definitely I think that's our competitive advantage. Um, we do see a lot of com- uh, companies and we, we've got good market feel across the market. Thanks, Faz. Thanks, Oscar. Um, Oscar, this one's from David. He says, "Can I assume that the profits reserve represents realised profits and not quote unquote book profits on unrealised investments?" So, if it, it, it most the vast majority is actually unrealised profits. So it's unrealised profits and realised profits. The problem is if it was just realised profits, we'd have to sell everything um, to be able to to be actually able to generate the profit and then also to, to pay you a dividend. So if without those unrealised gains and prepaying tax um, effectively over the course of those unrealised gains, um, you know, we'd have to sell a huge chunk of the portfolio just to keep funding the dividends. So the answer is a big portion of it is unrealised gains and then a, a portion of it is is also un, is realised gains, and that's how that's how we that's how we generate uh, the ability to pay dividends. Okay, thanks, Oscar. Um, Cooper, we'll go to you now. Uh, James again has noticed that in the January twenty three NTA update, Austin Engineering was a significant part of the microcap portfolio. Can you speak more about why you're excited about this stock and what potential it has? Yeah, sure, James. Um, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the questions as well. Um, Sean touched on some factors earlier on the mining services sector and while we're bullish around it. Austin Engineering is a company that does uh, like truck tray bodies and buckets for the mining sector. Um, we're really bullish this stock. Basically, it's had trouble in its Australian division. It's had labour issues and supply issues. Um, but the demand has never wavered. Its order book's actually up 40%. They just haven't been able to service that demand. We believe Austin's made the necessary changes to address that issue. And, and hopefully we'll see this in, improve in the next half and then going through the FYR24 as well. Um, we really think the margins will improve and you'll see this You'll see this uptick once they start actually addressing that order book. Um, another reason we're really bullish, again, Sean, you mentioned management. David Singleton runs this company. Um, we followed him for a long time. He, he was managing director of, of, um, of Austin, Austin Boats before Austin Engineering. And we followed him through that company and then in Austin, we believe he's doing a fantastic job and we'll see an uplift in the shares as he addresses that Australian problem. And I guess just to expand on that point, I mean, obviously, you know, we, we think there's earnings upside, but the other catalyst there is really around acquisitions. The balance sheet's in great shape and you know, we think they can continue to expand their addressable market globally after undertaking M&A. Thanks, guys. Um, Oscar, we'll go to you. This one's from Philip. He said, following the West Oz and Ausgrowth takeover, were there any duplications in the uh, WAM cap investment portfolio? Thanks, Philip. Um, there were some very minimal duplications. So the, we had some mining services companies. So the guys just talked about Austin Engineering. Uh, we had a weighting in WAM microcap, was, and it was doing very well at the time. Um, so we took on Euros's. Euros had a very large holding in Austin Engineering. I think we ended up with about 7 or 8% of the company. Um, so that's done very well for us. Uh, NRW, we didn't own any shares at that point in time, but we were actually looking to buy it at that time, point in time, and we inherited the NRW, which was great. Um, 
and then we the uh, the only other stop. Well, that 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 was it. That was on. That was really the crossover. And Philip, you you probably remember that that portfolio was largely re- resources orientated. And as I said earlier, we focus on industrial companies. So ba- basically, anything that's not resources. Um, and so effectively, you know, we did liquidate quite a substantial amount of that portfolio. And the last stock that we did liquidate, um, I think we did around about when was that? Just before Christmas, was a company called Allcorp. Um, so there's really not much of that portfolio. There might be 15% of that portfolio left in our portfolio in WAM Capital. Um, so it's probably around, uh, that's probably about 4 or 5% of WAM Capital um, as it stands today. But those stocks we're very uh, positive on. So, um, you know, if the context of the question is, has it been a headwind? The answers are no. Thanks, Oscar. Um, Peter's asked you, he says, I understand the profits reserve can grow when you make profits on your investments. Can you also grow the reserve from franking received from those underlying investments? Uh, that is correct. I think, um, you know, I'd say for the WAM leaders, we, we, if you think about WAM leaders, um, the vast majority of the companies that they own and where, that the guys own in WAM leaders pays fully frank dividends. Now, for us in WAM Capital, there's, you know, while we have companies that are generating, you know, that are generating effectively um, unrealised gains, which is effectively profit that we get taxed on. A lot of, and, and that gives us the ability for us to pay, um, to give franking. Um, there is a, because we're in small companies or really small companies, a lot of them don't, uh, might not pay dividends or might not even frank their dividends. So it means that, you know, I would say, um, the franking is generally lower. The franking that we generate in a period is probably lower uh, than the dividends that we have the ability to pay. Um, so we do have to find it in other ways, um, and which we've we've done previously. When there's if you see a, a potential acquisition like a Mason or Euros acquisitions where we can buy something at a discount, you know, which we see a return doing that, um, but it has the added benefit of franking. We can pass that on to the shareholders. Thanks, Oscar. Um, Tobias and Oscar, Chris has asked for your two high-conviction stock picks. I'll go if you want first. So Mermaid Marine was still very positive on. I think I said that back in January. It has, has had a good run. We have t- sold some over the last week because it's gone so well. That doesn't mean we're negative on it. We're still very positive. Um, I am reckon this one's going to double <laughs> this year. It's called Evolve Education. Um, it's a childcare company, very simple quite small we went substantial around 10 percent of the company i think it was um back in late 2020 it's been a dog it hasn't done well for us at all um it's sitting at 50 cents a share i think you know our average price might be a dollar a share or so um but it's run by uh chris scott who's the ex um ceo and founder of g8 education which is you know asx 200 company you know over a billion dollar market cap um so he knows how to make money knows knows the sector very well um, they've sold their New Zealand operations. Business is net cash um, there, uh, and looking to do acquisitions. So it's a very simple story, very similar to G8 in the early days. Now, why we like childcare, and we also like we own G8 in, our, in WAM Capital as well. Now, and why do we own like childcare right now? There's a number of reasons. Firstly, it's very hard to develop a childcare centre right now. Building costs are very high and banks are not willing to lend. And secondly, and most importantly, you have probably have the most favourable conditions around funding that the sector's ever seen with the Labor's new policy coming into fruition 
uh, in July. So we think the demand for childcare is going to really increase, and this will be this will benefit the operators. So, um, so we see a good environment for acquisitions, good environment for organic growth. This business is trading, I think, on a on a price to earnings multiple. We think of around sort of five to six times earnings. Um, once it deploys all its money, we we think it could easily double um, over the next twelve months. Yep, and one for me. Um, this company is reporting in about I think two weeks' time. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> um, uh, the company is Tuas Limited, TUA. It's a ticker. It's the uh, challenger mobile operator in in, this, in Singapore, uh, run by or founded by um, the founder of TBG Telecom. It's a founder-led business. Um, you know, we believe they're taking a lot of share from the incumbents. Uh, has the same blueprint as uh, TBG Telecom back in the days when they won share from Telstra over over a decade. Um, you know, we believe they have real and sustainable cost advantages uh, in Singapore, which allows them the it gives them the opportunity to to price under the market in terms of the value of their plans. As an example, their ten dollars per month mobile plan, um, you know, has hundred gigabytes of data attached to it, versus their peers can probably only offer up to fifteen to twenty gigs of data. You know, we think that's a substantial advantage for them, and you know, we believe they can continue to win market share uh, in Singapore and over time, you know, roll out other products. So that, that's something that we really like on a three to five year uh, time frame. Great. Thanks both. Um, Oscar, this one's from Anthony who's asked, why does Wilson Asset Management not advertise their investment portfolio performance after fees? Thanks, Anthony. So, I mean, Jeff, we always get this que- the question, right? you know, and what Jeff would say is effectively um, we want a like-for-like like comparison to the benchmark, um, which and if you're looking at it, all uh, portfolio managers and, you know, or, or, and if you want to have an ETF, there is a fee involved. So we want a like-for-like like comparison. Um, but we do disclose it. So it's on our website. Um, and also we publish it in our annual reports uh, twice a year. Thanks, Oscar. Um, we've got another one from Philip, also for you. Considering the macroeconomic factors such as Russian invasion of Ukraine, supply chain issues and more, he's asked why a move to more defensive strategy, including substantial cash holdings, was not undertaken for both WAM cap and WAM microcap. That's a great question, Philip. Um, look, if you, it's a tough one because, you know, we did this call, I think I, I would have done this call back in, we did this call, but it would have been sort of July. And I think, you know, if you reflect on the, that year, the financial year of 2022, what was the mistake? Um, it was probably that we underestimated um, how much of an impact the, the Russia-Ukraine war would have um, effectively on, on sentiment. And then at the same time, it was more inflation. I think, you know, Russia-Ukraine war was a left-field event. I don't think anyone knew or think thought it was going to happen. Um, inflation was there at that point in time, but and I think you know our view was that it was cyclical, and clearly there's you know it's taken a long it's taking a long time for it to come down. And that was probably something that we underestimated. Now we were we, we've stayed true the whole time through. We didn't go to cash. We went to cash in COVID. That was the right move. We chose not to go to cash, and there was plenty of times through April, May, and June where we caught up and we said, should we go to cash? Should we cash? And we didn't. Now, looking where the market's gone this year, that was a great move. If we went to cash, went to 40 or 50% cash, like we, we have in the past, there is no way we would be, um, you know, the portfolio would have been plus 13, 14%, pretty close to the All Ordinaries Index this year. So it probably would have been, oh, God, a quarter of that. 
um, if we'd gone to cash. So, look, it's 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 a hard one to call. Um, yeah, if if I had if in hindsight, you would have loved to go into a bit more cash in January and February, um, and deployed it through the May and June weakness. Um, but as we sit here today, I still you know think it was the right move not to go to cash, um, and we've just got to be prepared for when we want we want to outperform. We basically when that when that tide turns, when large caps start um, underperforming and small caps start outperforming, we want to you know do very well in that period. And Jeff will always say that it's it's not about what you lose in the downturn is what you gain in the upturn. And as I said before, Wham Capital's best years were from 2010 to 2016 when small caps underperformed large caps, and we think that's coming. Um, so we, we want to be we want to be in the market for that. Yeah, I think just to add to what Oscar was saying, during that period we were rotating the portfolio to yeah. the higher quality names as well. And I think the um, the equilibrium cash levels has probably changed versus say ten years ago, where you know the funds are a lot larger now. We have um, a lot more um, larger companies with uh, more liquid companies um, in the portfolio. So also the, the the makeup of the portfolio is very different um, now versus back in the days. And I'd say with that as well, the the problem we did this in at the back end of 2018, like when you go to cash, you're generally selling, this is Tobias' point, you're selling your most liquid companies to get to that cash level, um, which means that what you're left with are the most illiquid companies, like the smaller, really small companies. And that can really catch you if the market starts turning the other way because the smaller companies don't move. It takes them six months to move with the broader market because they're risky. So you look, yeah, I mean, it's a tough one to call. I look, do we regret it? I, I probably... I think I, I personally, I think it was the right move at where we sit today, not to go to cash. Thanks, guys. Um, Will, this is a question from Chris. He says, do you have any strong views on lithium stocks? Yeah, we have a couple of strong, strong views. We think, um, look, it's a really interesting space. And as um, Peter Bradford, the IGO CEO, who sadly passed away last year, he said it's, it's an immature market. It's very early days and um, there's a lot happening. We really like the companies that are generating cash and, you know, we, we own PLS in WAM Capital. We think that's really important. And I think I said last time on the call that we sort of weren't looking at the developers as much because of the sort of stretched valuations um, and we'd rather be exposed to, to those earning cash flows when, the, when there was a bit more risk around where demand was coming sort of this year and next. However, those valuations have come back a bit. So we've been adding to positions in the micro fund we own, Global Lithium, which is GL1, and Lithium Power, which is LPI. Just because we think that, you know, as people get more confidence throughout this year, and you can see that that demand is stronger. And I think that's the biggest question within the market. We all know how much supply there is. And, you know, the market whips around on a Goldsmith report on um, lithium out of China. And then suddenly last week it's whipping around again on the fact that that's been shut down. And it's, it's, it's very um, spiggy at the moment. However, the, these developer valuations are coming down. And I think that there will be a point where you've got the upstream suppliers that need to come down and look at these companies and, and we'll look at buying them as well. The, the, the important point thing I'd add there is the way that we approach, you know, companies in the lithium space is exactly the way we approach our broader portfolio, which is always sticking through our process around, you know, identifying catalysts and, and high-quality undervalued companies. So, as an overarching statement, that, that, that is how we approach that second market. So. Cool. Thanks, guys. Sean, we'll actually stay with you. Um, Ian has asked if you believe that retailer City Sheet Collective has bottomed. Oh, tough one. Um, 
I'd say it's an overarching statement. We're always um, followers of Brett Lundy, and we, we view him as the smart money. He's a lot better retailer than I am. So, yeah, he's obviously taken a, a significant stake in the business more recently, which, um, you know, certainly piked our interest. I think in the near term, like, the outlook's clearly challenging. I mean, I think the balance sheet risks have fallen for investors, but, you know, you are up against pretty tough short-term fundamentals, obviously with recession, you know, elevated inventory. Uh, but, you know, management focus is really around, I guess, re- reducing that inventory balance and, and you know, prioritising that overgrowth, um, which I think will, you know, see them ultimately get back towards that net cash position. But, you know, if you're willing to take a medium-term view on this on this business, I mean, we think it can get back 10 to 13% EBITDA margins in, you know, normalised environments. If you're shooting that's FY25, I mean, the business is on five or six times PE at the moment. So it does scream as really good value, but I do think you just need to take out a longer term view on this one at the moment. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Sam, we'll go to you. Nick Scarley has been a favourite previously. Do you have any exposure at the moment? Thanks, Camilla. No, we don't have any exposure at the moment. It has been a favourite in the past. Um, our view is that it's obviously an incredibly great management team and management business well with an excellent track record of value creation. Um, just in the short term, though, I guess we're a little bit cautious on the near-term outlook. What sent the share price falling in February was the fact that written orders in January and the early start of Feb had actually deteriorated significantly versus expectations out there in the market. So we want to see that play out a little bit further and see how they trade through this, this period given a deteriorating housing environment. Obviously, we think their acquisition of Plush was a great move. There's a lot of initiatives there that they can self-help initiatives that can really drive earnings growth over the, um, the, the short to medium term. But at the same time, they did acquire a business and double down on household goods, probably at the wrong point in the cycle as well. So again, um, one that we're keeping a very close eye on, um, but not in the portfolio at the moment. Thanks, Sam. Uh, Will, this is a question from John. What are your thoughts on Hanson with the ticker HSN? Um, yeah, I really like Hanson. It's interesting. If you sort of said, you know, one of the top management on the ASX, Andrew Hanson would be there. What's one of the safest stocks in the ASX? Probably Hanson. Um, 30% margins, which are, have been constant for you know, nearly 10 years. Unfortunately, people want to pay more for a company that's growing, that's got 3% margins, growing at um, revenues at four or five times a year in a, in a really sort of then in a high-growth company, as opposed to Andrew's very safe company. Um, which means that their valuation isn't high. And, and, and I think the, the key focus for Hanson is making sure that they can get some acquisitions, build it in, and, and they, they've made some amazing acquisitions in history. But as we've, as we've seen now in the, in the rising interest rate environment, the, the multiples of the businesses that um, they've been looking at it are coming down. So I reckon they're going to start making some acquisitions probably in the, the second half. And like the, the CFO, Graham, has just moved over to um, the UK, and I imagine that's to look at acquisitions. And that once the market starts to see signs that they're looking at buying something, I think you know that stock will definitely start to rewrite. Thanks, Will. Um, Sean, we'll go to you. Uh, question from Joseph: Do you believe Harvey Norman is worth holding over the long term period? Yeah, good question, Joseph. Obviously, result out um, recently. I mean, the Australian benef- uh, franchisees have been material beneficiaries of COVID. So, I guess moving through the second half of 23 and, and into FY24, 
we do think sales growth, um, you know, and margins will moderate, you know, back towards historical levels and those pre-COVID levels, which, you know, in effect, we'll see negative earnings momentum for for the business. Um, I guess the positive though is that the property portfolio, the freehold investment, um, you know, portfolio is worth about two dollars seventy-five per share. So, you know, over the medium term, yeah, we do think it looks like good value here, but in the short term, we think. You know, negative earnings by man probably probably caps the um, the share price upside. Thanks, Sean. Uh, Oscar, question from Peter: What is the catalyst for staying invested in Keybridge Capital? Oh, it's probably one for Jeff. I think that one, Peter. Um, you know, I think from memory that was more of an activist position that we took years ago, uh, but a long, long time ago. I think it's been in the portfolio before, before my time, yeah. at least eight or nine years. I think. Um, so that's probably more of a question for Jeff. It's just in WAM Active, uh, Keybridge. Thanks, Oscar. Um, we'll go back to the analysts. If anyone has, uh, sorry, we'll go to Sam. Does WAM Research or WAM Microcap hold Magellan Financial Group, MFG? Thanks, Camilla. Um, no, we currently don't own Magellan within the portfolio, within um, you know WAM Research or WAM Microcap. Um, Look, it's one that we're monitoring closely. Obviously, it's, it's fallen um, from grace. Um, obviously, you know, with a lot of management changes and the fact that they've lost a lot of fun recently. But it's it's one that we're monitoring. There is there is value there, as you've probably seen in the press that Jeff has alluded to, um, just in terms of their stakes within various businesses, including Baron Joey and including some of the unlisted businesses that they hold. So we're monitoring it and... Um, I guess what makes this one look pretty interesting too is you've effectively got, you know, a $1 billion EV. It's got $250 million of cash and, you know, in theory, a $400 million Baron Joey stake. So you, you, you kind of X that out. The actual underlying funds management business is trading on, you know, seven, eight times PE. So, yeah, there's definitely um, uh, an, interesting, an interesting little discount to NTA play there, if you like, which um, is right up Jeff's alley. Thanks, guys. We'll stay with you. Um, does anyone have any thoughts on Mars Group and Mad Pause Holdings? I can do Mars. Let me do Mars Group and um, one of the other guys can do Mad Pause. Um, just on, on Mars, look, it's been a very frustrating holding for us over the last uh, 12 to 18 months. I mean, we always love founder-led businesses, but sometimes founders can do things that probably don't sit right with the market, and certainly Mars is that. Unfortunately, um, they decide, Mars Group decided to make um, acquisitions or too many acquisitions and has continued to do that over the last uh, 12 months and is paying the price for it now. So, look, we have reduced our holding in Mars Group. We still own the company. Look, the, the, the balance sheet, the, the, the assets on the balance sheet is worth well north of where the share price currently sits today. It's been impacted by weather. Um, so earnings are artificially depressed. But what we would like to see the company going forward is to focus getting on organic growth, stop acquiring businesses, generate some positive cash flow and reduce debt, uh, which we're hoping that the management's going to do that. Um, I suppose I'll have a stab at that pause. It's, it's not one that, that we look at um, really. It's the market cap, I think, is about $40 million. Um, yeah, $40 million and, and unfortunately, that doesn't really fit within our micro cap strategy. Even It's, it's too illiquid for us to own, but... In general, the strategy around, I suppose, discretionary spend on, on people's pets has been an increasing one, and especially pre-COVID. Um, we haven't seen that trend change outside of COVID. Um, but again, 
not one that we're going to actively own. Cool. Thanks, Cooper. Thanks, Oscar. Um, Oscar, good question from Mindy. Given the drop in the share price, are you saying it's a good time to buy in? Oh, I'll tell you a funny story about that, Mindy. Um, I told a broker um, when our uh, result came out, on the, as soon as it came out on the ASX, I was like, can you buy, us, buy me some shares in Wham Capital? And then I was like, the next day I was like, I didn't hear anything from the broker. And I called the broker up and he forgot. I was like, Jesus. Anyway, but anyway, we, I definitely bought the next day and I think most of the team did as well. Um, so, yeah, because it was one of the first times we've seen Wham Capital. I mean, I've been at Wham Capital. It's my seventh year. It's never traded close to net tangible assets like it did prior to us uh, releasing the result and having that conference call. So, um, you know, generally I'd say across all the funds, um, you know, speaking for myself, and I know the other guys are very similar, um, where our wealth is 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 effectively or, or the shares that we own the most of, let's call it, are in the funds that are either trading close to net tangible assets or at a discount to net tangible assets. So for me personally, um, you know, my, where Microcap got a large holding, but also Wham Leaders and Wham Global um, would be my my largest holdings really personally. So, look, is it is it a good time to buy? Um, look, we think it's a very good time to be buying small caps. Certainly, we're very bullish on the small cap market, and if you if if it turns out that'll be right, then Wham Capital should do very well. However, just remember, we're trading still at a ten to fifteen percent premium. Uh, to our net tangible assets. It's very high um, still. So it's just, yes, the share price has reduced, but it's gone from a 30% premium to, to its net tangible assets to a 10 to 15% premium to net tangible assets. So, look, it's still high. Um, and as Jeff will always say, you know, you like to um, buy a dollar of assets at 80 cents. So just be mindful of that. Uh, but, like, just generally, look, we are positive on, on small cap companies, um, and that's why we're fully invested. Thanks, Oscar. Uh, Will, this is a question from Mark. I always butcher this pronunciation. Do you have any current thoughts on Centaurus Metals? No, you got it. That's it. That's all right. Um, yeah, Jared and Roger, we really like them, CEO and, and Chief Exploration Officer. I think they're great operators and they've done an amazing job on this asset over in Brazil. I guess the one, and we, and we own this in um, Land Capital. The one thing that they needed to do is get out of their agreement with Vale, and that's going to be a difficult thing to negotiate because Vale has spoken about their wanting to move into the future-facing metals, which is which is copper and nickel and the rest of it, and this is a really good nickel project. And if they can get out of that, there's massive valuation upside for this company, and and um, we've reduced our position a little bit just because we think there is a little bit of risk there, but um, you know, if they can do it, it's, it's going to be massive. So, yeah, we still like it. Thanks, Will. Oscar, this one's from Stephen, who says, do you think WAM has been adversely impacted because you are losing focus by allocating resources to look at acquisitions rather than looking after the investment portfolios? Thanks, Stephen. No, definitely not. So we don't look at the acquisitions. So the team that's presenting today, the six of us, we don't look at them at all. That's largely Jeff um, and Marty McCarthy, who's in our uh, um, in our in our operate or was in our operations team at the time that we did those acquisitions, and also Jesse Hamilton, our chief financial officer. So no, the answer is absolutely no. We do zero on that. Um, we're fully focused on the and always has have been. And uh, you know, Jeff, speaking for Jeff, that's what exactly what he would say. He's more about the growth of the business. Um, obviously, he keeps a tune of what we're doing in the portfolio and everything like that. But the stock picking, the seeing companies, that's all the six of us. 
Thanks, Oscar. Uh, question to uh, sorry. Tobias, question from Phil. This sounds like something from Top Gun. Have you reviewed Mark 7 Technologies, which is in the healthcare sector? I love that. Yeah, thanks, Phil. Um, I, um, yeah, we've had Mark 7 in, uh, in the microcap fund, I think, a while ago. Um, we, we, don't, we don't own Mark 7 currently. Um, I, I think one of the lessons we've had over the last you know, period has been if you had a choice between a, a higher quality company with a, with a better technology, or better moat and a lower quality company, even though the lower quality company is cheaper. We've, you know, I think the, the, the better investment has always been with a high quality company. So, you know, Mark 7 is not something we've looked at recently. It doesn't have the same earnings margin and um, the recurring nature of that business is a bit, um, it's not the same as uh, ProMedicus, which is something I've talked about earlier. So, so Mark 7 is not something on our radar right now. Thanks, Faris. Um, Oscar, you did touch on this before, but if we can revisit, this one's from Cynthia. Can WAM Capital and WAM Research continue to pay their current dividends into the future? Uh, the answer is yes. So um, to, to rehash, well, look, WAM Research definitely has plenty of um, uh, tank in the in the profit reserve, so they're, they're fine, at least for the next three or four years. Um, Camille, you might be able to get me what, what the sort of dividend coverage is there. But for WAM Capital, we can pay the next um, uh, dividend in April. That's 7.75 cents. Um, but we've got 14.7 cents uh, in the profit reserve. So we've got 7 cents a share after we pay the April April dividend. So for us to improve on that 7, we need the market to go up. We need our performance to go up. That will build the profit reserve. And, you know, if, if, if that occurs... Um, like it did in 2021, um, then we will add a whole heap to the profit reserve. And, um, yeah, at least for the foreseeable future, we do have um, coverage of, the, of our dividends. So, Cynthia, it's just very important just to monitor the market. Um, if the market falls 10% from here, from here over the next four months, and say we've done a good job and, and we're, the market's fallen 10 and we're, we're down 8, right, I'll be happy as the portfolio manager because we've outperformed the market. But you as an investor won't be happy because we're down 8%, so we're not adding to the profit reserve. So when we get to this call in July of this year and suddenly we're at, um, we've only got $0.07 cents in the profit reserve and that's it, when we last paid 7.75 in April, suddenly there's risk on that October dividend. Um, so you just got to keep monitoring the market, monitor our net tangible asset announcements that come on the ASX every mid-month. Great. Thanks, Oscar. Um, question for both yourself and Tobias. Is Lendlease in your investment process and would, is there a price that you consider buying it at? There's always a price, Camilla. Um, that's for sure. So I'm just looking at my phone. Yes, they do. So Wham Leaders actually own Lendlease. They've got a reasonable position. I think it's in their top 20. Um, the stock has been a perennial underperformer um, over the years. Um you know, but there is sort of takeover rumours speculating. There's some activist investors to break it up. Uh, Matt and John obviously aren't on the call, but I think it's that activism and potentially breaking up the company that they're interested in. Um, we don't currently own it within WAM Capital. Um, would we own it at a later date? Yeah, we'd absolutely. If, if there was catalysts there and it was looking cheap and, and we thought the share price would go up 100%. Um, but I don't think we've owned Lead and Lease for, I don't think yet since I've been at WAM. For the last seven years, I don't think we've owned it. So, um, so yeah, look, everything, everything uh, you never rule out a company, 
Uh, but from our perspective, we don't own it at the moment. Thanks, Oscar. Uh, Cooper, a question from Stephen. Is there any appetite to take a position in uranium producers in the near term? Uh, in the near term, um, good question. We, we do dabble in and out of uranium stocks from time to time. It's part of a kind of a bucket we like to call new energy. We believe there's a bit of an energy crisis that's happening in the world, so we do keep an eye on it as an alternative source of energy. Unfortunately, I think there's some government regulations in most of the Western world that prohibit that becoming a major fuel source. Um, because of that, we don't really have a long-term view on, on uranium. We do trade in and out of it depending on what the uranium price is doing. And when we do that, we'll play things like primary producers, uh, um, stuff that's in production, so you can actually capitalise on that change in the price. Um, in terms of a long-term view, not too really sure. It relies on a lot of government regulation. But again, um, energy crisis is a thing that will continue to play out and it's something that we consistently look at. Thanks, Cooper. Um, does anyone mm -hmm. across the team have any thoughts on Liontown? Yeah, yeah, Liontown. Um, we talked on lithium and, and I suppose lithium supply earlier today. Um, it's very tough to get these these explorers and I suppose developers up and up and actually producing lithium. Um, Liontown came out with a study that surprised the market on its capex requirements. It was much higher than um, the market was expecting. We see that happening in a few in a few developers as well. Um, we like Liontown. It's a quality asset. WA good jurisdiction, so we're happy to. Happy to own it. We just don't think there's many assets like this out there in the world. So it's one that we will continue to look at. We don't own currently, sorry, I should say, but it's one we will look to kind of own if it gets closer to production. I'd say at the moment there's an overarching statement for that. I mean, we are focused on assets in production, particularly given, you know, the risks around construction cost blowouts and, and getting mines up in, you know, lots of high inflation and, and you know, tight labour market. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Cooper. Tobias, we'll go to you. Do you have any thoughts on Nine Entertainment? Yes, th thank you. Um, look, Nine is a great company. However, our concerns around, um, you know, TV has you know benefited during COVID, um, obviously with people having to stay at home. Stay at home. So the way we're playing media is through um, uh, U Media, which is an outdoor advertising business. You know, the recovery um, has been very strong. We we believe they're actually winning share of linear TV. Um, so we think that trend will continue um, from, you know, the TV's perspective. I guess, you know, the BVOD is the exciting area that's offsetting some of the declines in uh, linear TV. So um, not something we're looking at right now um, as we're pretty uh, fully invested in U Media. Thanks, Tobias. Uh, that actually brings us to the end of the Q&A. Oscar, I'll just pass to you for any closing remarks. Yeah, look, th thanks everyone for, for dialing in. Um, really appreciate it. And also, thank you for your support. Um, look, if you haven't got any questions, um, very happy to have a chat. Um, you know, obviously, we've got the corporate affairs team that always get back to you. But, um, you know, personally, if you need to call us, uh, we're only a phone call away. So, look, it's a very um, volatile market right now. It's, it's, it's probably the most volatile we've ever seen it. It's probably the toughest market we've ever experienced. I think it's harder than COVID, to be fair, um, to what COVID was. Um, so, look, in terms of how we're thinking broadly, we're, you know, it does feel like the interest rate rise is a, a, at least it's sort of it's mixed, but we do think that's coming to an end. Um, and when, when that does occur, I think that'll be very positive and you'll see a swing back to small cap companies from large cap companies. So, look, um, really appreciate the support um, and thanks again for your time today.